Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're returning to a topic that David has raised a couple of times in previous episodes, about how he thinks opposition leaders in a parliamentary system should position themselves vis-a-vis -vis the government. His past observations have received a lot of viewer and listener feedback, so it seemed like a good idea to dedicate more time to David's views on the subject and challenge him with some of the thoughtful comments that we've received. David, thanks for joining us once again. Thank you, I'm looking forward to mixing it up today. Let's start with a refresher for those who may have missed your previous comments. Then we can get into some of the specifics. What's your main argument here? In broad terms, what should opposition leaders in parliamentary systems like Britain's or Canada's be doing in the lead up to the next election, whenever it is? Well, that, that's a very good caution. We're not talking here about American-style presidential systems. We're not talking about European-style proportional representation systems. We are talking about Westminster systems and consolidated democracies, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and somewhere. Keep in mind these facts about those systems. One is that government has enormous control over the agenda and over the flow of information. And the second is that these are very successful societies built on a lot of basic acceptance of the rules of the game, a lot of con content, and uh, compared, certainly compared to the United States, low levels of polarization. And so there's a big discrepancy in these societies between where the activists in the party are and where the people will decide the electorate is. So the activists are always, they're really agitated about the government of the day. They want something done. And they put enormous pressure on their leaders to speak out. And that creates a tension which forces the hand. Because the thing that leaders of these parties need to keep in mind is that while they have the job of establishing account plausibility and acceptability to the general public, they do not know what the election is going to be about until very close to what the election is going to be about. And it's really important for them to maintain their tactical flexibility. The government has the initiative. The government has agenda control. The opposition does not. And therefore, the opposition, like someone receiving a serve in tennis, its job is to be nimble on its feet because it doesn't know where the ball is going to go. And if it takes a position too dramatically, and this is the story of, of Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, who I have met many problems with Jeremy Corbyn, but he he's locked into an identity and there's no room to move. So there are some things that oppositions can affirmatively do, but that's the general case. 
So in effect, what you're saying is that rather than committing to a detailed policy program, opposition leaders instead should focus their attention on prosecuting their case against the government. But you also have some specific views on the work that they should be doing and how they should be positioning themselves. Let's call them Frum's Commandments. Why don't you outline them for our audience? Okay. Well, the the most important thing to remember is you are auditioning for a job that the opposition leader of the opposition has is undergoing a long job interview with an inattentive interviewee. So the first thing to do is to establish plausibility and acceptability for the job you want. And that means above all, avoiding mistakes. And again, I'm going to revert to the Jeremy Corbyn case. If it's Remembrance Day, wear a blink and pop it. You know, if, if there are things that people expect the leader of their state to do, do those things. Be seen looking like a, a prime minister because that's the job you're competing for. Dress the way a prime minister should dress. Comport yourself the way a prime minister should comport himself or herself. Um, the next thing, of course, is to pay careful attention to your party structure. You're building a machine. And this is both a defensive commandment because the activists, the activists are much more upset about the government than the public is. So if you look like you're doing nothing, you will lose the activists, candidate recruitment, fundraising, um, visibility. Next, there is an, an educational process that a politician will typically go from being a backbencher to being an opposition leader to being a prime minister. Once that person is the prime minister, there's very little learning space. The opposition leader has lots of learning space. So this is the time to master your briefs, to know the issues, um, to be ready for for government. You don't have to publish a big manifesto to have in your mind some clear ideas of what you would want to do. So I want to make clear, I'm not saying don't have a plan. I'm just saying don't think that the plan is going to get you the job you want. Finally, and above all, you need to bring your party with you from being, and the longer a party has been out of government, the more it ceases to think like government. You need to educate your party about, um, if you can get a few, you don't have to get lots of things done. You just need to get a, a few things done. You know, we hope our democracies are going to be with us for a, a little time, for a long time. So any little improvement you can make along the way, achieving the things that you think are important, those are real accomplishments. Not every government is not, you know, Americans are always demanding that their presidents behave like Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1933 or Lyndon Johnson in 1964. And there's a reason we remember those dates is because it's not like that most of the time. Let me just accentuate a couple of the points that you've made, and then we'll come to the pushback that we've received from listeners and viewers. You mentioned candidate recruitment. It's a big part of the job, of course. I think, for instance, back in 2005, 2006, for Stephen Harper to get Jim Flaherty, John Barrett, and Tony Clement to shift from Ontario politics to a federal level was an affirmation of his leadership. In the absence of policy commitments, What tools does an opposition leader have to signal to candidates what he or her are about and in turn attract them to run? Well, the the candidate recruitment has is a building with many, many levels. As you said, you start focus on the very high end. So if you're recruiting a Jim Flaherty from Ontario, he wants to know what job am I going to have? And the problem is the head of the party can't make commitments because he doesn't know he doesn't know what other pieces of Lego are going to be in the Lego set. He doesn't know how that you know what he's going to have from Saskatchewan, what he's going to have, or she is going to have from Quebec. So it's hard to make. You can't say you will be my finance minister because it may be that you have so many talented people from that that same province that you know you're going to have to make some concessions. But you can broadly indicate that 
you know, where somebody stands in the, the hierarchy of talent and to say, uh, you're, you're going to be my one of the three people I rely on most. You're going to be one of the two people I rely on most. You're the person I, re- I will rely on most. Candidate recruitment also has to focus on down the ballot. You know, one of the reasons that the Mulroney government of the 80s got into so much um, ethical trouble was because they won a lot of seats. They never expected to win. And no one had any paid any attention to who was going to be the candidate in the 30th most electable district in Quebec. Your questions were, do you have a pulse? Do you have a criminal record? You get the right answer on the pulse criminal record question. Good, you're our nominee. Thank you very much for your self-sacrifice. And then that person wins. And then that person, and then you, you, there are a lot of questions beyond that. So you need to you need to think a little. You don't want to overdo it because you probably will not win a huge sweeping majority, but Mulroney was, was caught by surprise and brought into office many people that I'm sure he didn't think had any business being there. <laughs> um, but so those, the, those are, are challenging. But at the top people are not there. They have agendas of their own. And what they want to know is, and they, they're often quite specific, and they want to know, will I be able to achieve this or this set of reforms? Will there be scope for me to do that? How high will that rank on your list of priorities? A lot of this is not going to be of intense interest to the general public. I mean, if you've got a candidate in the, from the financial sector who wants to rebalance against the insurance companies and in favor of the banks or the other way around, those are not ballot issues, but they are important policy issues, and that's going to be part of the negotiation. What about the need to define oneself? How, in your view, can an opposition leader define him or herself without a series of governing commitments? Because I think the way you define yourself in a, again, a parliamentary democracy in a reasonably successful country is not, is not on the issues. You define yourself as the kind of person you are. And here the voters are, are very wise. And I, I think I've used this example in the presidential context. President of the United States or candidate for president competes on a bunch of issues, wins office, step, takes the oath, has the lunch, steps into the oval, and they say, Mr. Madame President, there's a giant meteor heading straight to earth. And at that point, whatever else you thought you were doing, you are now the meteor presidency. And a lot of politics is like that. So when you over your define yourself on issues, what people really want to know is, suppose there's a giant meteor heading toward Earth. Are you the person I trust? Or, less extremely, you're going to be now, you're in the top job. You're going to have the big house. You're going to have the big plane. You're going to have the security detail. Are you going to remember me? Are you still going to, when you have all those things that separate you from me, are you going to still care about me? And a lot of politics is about signaling to people that even after I get all this fancy stuff, I'm, I'm not going to lose touch with the people who gave me the job and who will rehire me for the job or not. Just an aside, David, uh, to that point, we had a 2019 federal election campaign in Canada where the different parties put out reams of policy commitments. But in hindsight, fundamentally, what we were deciding is who was going to lead Canada's pandemic response. And no one remembers any of those policy commitments that were released in the context of that campaign. Okay, though, uh, let me push back a bit. I'll start with some contradictory examples. The Liberal Red Book in 1993, or say Mike Harris's Common Sense Revolution in 1995, are cases of opposition parties winning significant electoral victories after having committed to detailed policy programs. How do these examples fit in your commandments? Are they just aberrations? I don't think the Liberal Red Book of 1993 helped at all. So 1993, Canada is only just beginning to emerge from its worst recession since World War II. 
The government of the day has ripped itself to pieces over constitutional issues and over the imposition of the goods and services tax. That party is now shattered regionally with uh, its Quebec Quebec members breaking off, its Western members breaking off. If you're the liberal leader in 1993, you're going to win. So what the Red Book ended up being about was about party management, that that was much more a case of saying, since we're going to win anyway, we want to have a battle over the rewards of our victory now. If, If you can find a voter in 1993 who voted against Kim Campbell, uh, because of the liberal red book, I would be astonished. What that really was about was saying to liberals of various kinds, saying to Jean Chrétien, "You're the next prime minister. I want it in writing in advance what you're going to what you're going to give me for my concerns." Mike Harris was in a not in a similar but uh, situation, which is there, remember there had been a 40 year hold of conservative power in Ontario from the 1940s through uh, Bill Davis and and after, and then the Conservative Party just died of old age. Uh, just collapsed of its own exhaustion and, and loss of any mission. And then there was a series of uh, first liberals, uh, then a liberal, there's a liberal NDP minority, a liberal Ontario government, and then the NDP. And there was also that terribly serious recession of 1992-93. But there are a lot of people who were historical conservative voters who had skepticism about the party. And there are a lot of people who had been, in, who were in the conservative world who are more radical than conservatives had historically been because of the Ray deficits, because of the shock of that terrible recession. And they wanted to know that Mike Harris was actually going to do something rather than simply preside, as previous conservatives had done. But that was, again, I think some of the things Harris promised to do did help him in the general election. But again, not as much as the liberal red book, but I think to a great extent, that was also about, about party management. Harris would have won the election no matter what. I think it helped him to be a disciplined and effective leader. That They can sometimes do that, but it worked. I mean, it's very easy to imagine that they could have pushed him to a position where he was unable to respond and where they made him more radical than was acceptable in the context of 1995. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. There were also questions about the trade-offs between uh, electoral advantage in a governing mandate. The idea here is that while your advice may help an opposition party win an election, it won't give them a governing blueprint or a clear mandate for much. What would you say about these trade-offs? Is there a risk that it becomes about winning elections as an end in itself? Well, I think we, we use the word mandate to mean two different things. And one of them is the government's own internal to-do list. And yes, it's a real problem if you're elected without an internal to-do list. Um, if you don't know, I want to do, this is my first thing, this is my second. In that sense, policy specifics can be very helpful to a party to guide itself and to be an effective government. But if the assumption is that, in, now this is not the United States, that a parliamentary government with a majority behind it needs to have said in detail in advance what it's going to do in order to be able to do it, that's just not true. You get the majority. 
Disraeli um, once lost a debate in Parliament, of the story goes, and is said to have replied, a parliamentary majority is better than any repartee. And a parliamentary majority, that's the mandate. Um, once you have a majority, then you can govern. The, the deficiency is, and this is where governments often later in their lives get into trouble, they don't know what they want to do. So I hope I've been clear that it's important to have some internal discussion about what the, uh, the program is going to be, what you're going to do first, what you're going to do second, what you're not going to do, what's too dangerous to do, what, what is worth the risk. But the idea that this is going to make the impact on the voters is, is a big mistake. Do you think there may be different thresholds for policy plans for different leaders or parties? That is to say, if a conservative party doesn't release a detailed policy program, it might be accused of a so-called hidden agenda, whereas a center-left or left-wing leader may get the benefit of the doubt from the media, opinion leaders, and others. How much, in other words, David, are the calculations for an opposition leader contingent based on where they fit on the political spectrum or some other factors? Well, that I think a lot of that depends, and this then becomes very situational. If a Stephen Harper is vague, someone who's obviously very intelligent, very policy driven, then those is, you know they say yes, obviously you have a plan. You, there are things you want to do, obviously, and if you're not sharing them, that makes it seem like yes, you have a secret agenda. If, however, your leader is say Boris Johnson, no one's going to accuse Boris Johnson of having a secret agenda. Obviously, he just wants to get through the day without being yelled at by anybody, including one of his many wives or ex-wives. So there's a little bit here where you need to factor in the personality of the leader and the type of the leader. And then these things become very – this is – I've given general advice. There's very specific situational advice. And the secret agenda, what Harper did actually in his early elections follow the advice that I'm giving. And that's what exposed him to the secret agenda because so obviously he had – you know, detailed policy understanding and um, strong ideological commitments. And then in that case, you may need to post not so much an, an affirmative agenda, but a negative agenda. So it was important for Stephen Harper to say, as he did, um, we are not going to legislate on abortion. We're sticking with the status quo on abortion. So if you think that's one of the things I'm going to be doing that I'm not telling you about, I'm going to make a specific negative commitment. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be very specific about my other things. And look, in Harper, he got his majority. And what did he sail immediately into? Um, the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. And I, I don't think if you had sat down with Stephen Harper and interviewed him in 2006 and said, if you get a majority, what would you do? I, I, I don't think it lined up with what he, in fact, did, because the circumstances of 2006 and 2010 were so very, very different. We've been speaking in mostly... Uh, generalities, and I, I don't want to get into specific personalities or political figures, but as we have a Conservative Party leadership race in Canada, there's a lot of talk about coalitional considerations. How, in effect, will the next leader hold the, the party's different factions, whether it's red Tories in Atlantic Canada or Western populists or social conservatives and so on? To what extent, David, is a detailed policy program a means by which to signal to a party's different intellectual and, and ideological factions um, that they are indeed in the tent of a large brokerage party's coalition? I would say less than you think, because, look, highly ideological people want to believe that coalitions are built on ideology. But especially when you're talking about elected officials and activists, that disregards the crucial part of personality. I mean, why was Mulroney? such an efficient and effective coalition builder. He made people feel 
that he cared about them. So he would go to Nova Scotia and go to Quebec and go to Ontario. And he'd give them a little something. There'd be a little something like, uh, you know, um, he remember one of the things I remember very vividly, one of the things that was an important issue for him was that there was an, an Air Canada contract and there was a dispute between whether Winnipeg should have it or Montreal should have it. I forget who won. And I certainly forget what the merits were. But Mulroney managed to signal to the Manitoba people that he was on their side. And that helped him enormously. I don't know what the upshot of it was. I don't recall anymore. But personality, it's a people business. And, you know, there's a story in Michael Bliss's account of the, of the prime ministers. This is the best anecdote in the book, I think. Uh, there's a story about a young uh, liberal in the 1870s who gets terribly ill and has to leave parliament for a while. And he returns to parliament and he meets with the leaders of his party, Edward Blake, and they're doer, doer men. And he runs into John A. McDonald in the halls. And McDonald knows his name and puts his arm around him and says how much he's looking forward to getting hard questions from, from this uh, opposition member in the future, as he always has in the past. And the man then writes his wife, says, I think McDonald is a scoundrel of the deepest kind. And I disapprove of all of his principles of government. But it's hard to go to fight against so lovable a man. And uh, in a parliamentary system with your coalition, Making people feel important and valued, that, that's, uh, that's important. And if your policy agenda becomes a substitute for that, then it can, you can actually be doing work that is worthless or comparatively worthless and disregarding the work that is necessary of making people feel they're on a team. I think those of us who think and talk politics always tend to overestimate the, the role of ideas and underestimate the role of, of personality. And the, the voters and the professionals who care about, they're not wrong because the issue, as you said, with pandemic, with financial crisis, the issues have a way of being overtaken by events, but the personality remains. So in Britain, for example, what Keir Starmer is doing is he is reassuring his work every day, say, the, the Labour Party of Clement Attlee to Tony Benn that was of the center as much as of the left, that was cult, that was proudly patriotically British, that accepted the monarchy, that admired the armed forces, that believed that Britain had a role in the world, that upheld its alliances and commitments. You know, that Labour Party is back. I, and does he have any idea what the issues are going to be before him? He's probably going to come into power if he does after the Ukraine war is over, after Britain has made a permanent settlement with the European Union, or maybe not. He doesn't know. But what he can do is connect with British people on that deep level so that he's ready when it's his turn, if it becomes his turn. I was going to ask a question, David, about models of opposition leaders that you think have, have played the role particularly effectively, but you've just given us a, a number. So let's move on to the final topic I wanted to raise with you, which is a question about media relations. As more and more people get their news and information from social media and alternative news sources, how much time, if any, should opposition leaders spend focused on legacy media outlets? The leader personally does not have to do everything. I mean, the whole point to uh, a parliamentary system and one of its, its strengths is to is that you, the leader is not the team. And so a, a lot of Americans were surprised that Boris Johnson could be fired and that his government could continue because they didn't understand legally the voters had elected the conservatives and the leader of the conservatives became the prime minister. And if the conservatives changed their leader, then that person changed. So you have you have a front bench and, and you should use, use them. Legacy media is uh, remains important and it probably remains most important to the voters you need most. The people who are following politics on social media 
they probably are. Yeah, they know how they're going to vote. The people who are uncertain and up for grabs, they're probably watching legacy media. That media can be important. Generally, I mean, you know, politicians always have to be suspicious of the media, the imperatives. You know, they're, they're, politicians always think that the, the media is out to get them. And what they don't say, the media is not out to get you. The media is out to get whichever person happens to have this job. It's nothing personal. It's business, as they say in The Godfather, that embarrassing a leader is a win for a reporter, catching the leader offside. And it's not that they, whether they like the leader or not. And maybe some leaders at some phases get more benefit of the doubt. I think Justin Trudeau early in his career got a lot of benefit of the doubt and got more benefit of the doubt than Stephen Harper ever did. But no one's going to give up a raise or a promotion in their media business uh, for, in order to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. They, they may make mistakes. But you just need to, there's an adversarial relationship, but it's also a symbiotic relationship. You, you need each other. And if you start thinking of them as, uh, as the enemy, then you don't use them and get get from them what they can do for you. Uh, this has been a great conversation. We've we've covered a lot of ground and, and addressed many of the questions and comments that we've received from listeners and viewers uh, over the past several weeks. Do you want to just wrap up, David, with any final observations, any addendums or or illuminations of what we've come to call Frum's commandments? I think the main thing is you can't force it. You can't force it. Here's, let me give you one more analogy. I started with tennis, that you're, you're waiting for the serve, being nimble on your, on your feet. The other analogy I, I would use from the world of sport is skeet shooting. They, they fire the clay pigeon up into the air and you have to point the shotgun. I'm just terrible at this, by the way. But, uh, so I'm not, I'm not bragging here. But the reason it's so difficult is you can't shoot at the pigeon. You have to shoot at the place where the pigeon is going to be at the moment when your pellets arrive at that space. Um, you're always ahead of where the pigeon and trying to guess where the pigeon is going. Now, fortunately, in this case, it's a clay pigeon. It's just a disc. It's following uh, the laws of physics. It has no volition of its own. It is moving on an arc that is mathematically predictable. The voters are different. But the problem that makes the problem similar, but even more difficult, you have to think, where will they be? Let me get in with one last example. The whole Republican campaign for Congress in 2022 has been operating on this theory. It doesn't matter how crazy we are. It doesn't matter how terrible many of our Senate candidates are. All that's going to matter in November is that in April of 2022, gasoline prices reached an all-time high. But the problem is what's going to matter is not where gasoline prices were in April of 22. It's going to matter where they are in October of 2022. And because gasoline prices are sliding at the steepest rate ever seen, it suddenly matters a great deal that you're being crazy, that you've nominated all these terrible candidates. And they made a bet. They bet everything on the issue of gas prices. And guess what? The issue is changing and the bet looks not as good as it did a few months ago. As you, you talk, David, you know, it seems to me we might add to the Frum's commandments axiom, the idea of of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. I want to thank you uh, for joining me for uh, another one of our bi-weekly episodes of From Dialogues, and I, I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.